Okay. Anyway, should we do this? We shall. Right then. I'm Simon Mercer, and this is Crave. It's a podcast and a webcast. What do we say? Videocast. I don't read the scripts like <laughs> What we're here to do is talk about entertainment, anything from music to movies, anything that's been entertaining myself and Steve McKay lately. Absolutely. And, and, and this week, no, no kidding around. No joking. Because no. we're a joker. <laughs> now, now there, there's, there's not, not, as I just said to you before, the lightest of uh, light entertainment. But it has, I mean, I think it's fair to say that unlike other things we talk it's, it's kind of split opinion, hasn't it? Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, I think you and I are fairly closely agreed on on uh, Joker. Um, but it's a, it's a good one to talk about, and it's it's like it's serious, but is it serious? Oh no, it's serious. It's definitely serious. <laughs> we, we we shall dissect this. One, we, shall. we shall. Another serious it. question for you: Can a concert work yeah. if the sound quality isn't that crash hot? Right. That was the question. The answer is, if the band is postmodern jukebox, yes. Ah, Isn't that interesting? Well, I want to hear the explanation, I want to hear the <laughs> justification for that. Now, if, if, if you're going to be a podcast listener, so so those of you watching right now, guys, download the podcast. I've got I've been out with a chat with um, Steve Hackett from Genesis. Absolutely very, very interesting chat. He's coming to New Zealand next year. Fantastic. And so, then another question, if the book is good, does that mean the film is good? We're applying that to a film called The Goldfinch. It very, very rarely <laughs> necessarily follows. <laughs> I don't know. But we, we, we shall come to these. We shall. Come we shall. To, we shall but come to Steve, these. let's start with this film. Um, it's captured a lot of attention. It's divided a lot of opinion. This is, it, it's a standalone film. Yes, it is. It's telling the origin of the notorious Batman villain, uh, Joker. Yeah. The Joker. Uh, and he's been around in the comic books, of course, for yeah, decades. Exactly, yeah. And on screen, go, you go back to the... I can remember the 60s, there was that campy TV series. Oh, Lord, yes. Um, Cesar Romero played the Joker. Yes. You move forward uh, to the film versions and uh, the Tim Burton versions. Jack Nicholson played the yep, Joker. Yep. And then, of course, in more recent times with um, Christopher Nolan's yep. trilogy of Batman films, famously Heath Ledger his, won an Academy his Award. His classic role, yeah, yes. um, As the Joker. So... Um, here we are with Joaquin Phoenix and a, a new director, Todd Phillips, mm -hmm. giving us a whole film, a oh, yeah. whole film focusing on the origin of Joker. And and, and you say it focuses on the origin of Joker. Is there a single scene that doesn't have Joaquin Phoenix in it? I can't think of one off the top of my head. There can't have been many, can there? The film is him. Yes. And I just want to, let's start yeah. with this. You, when you walked out, yeah. what, were you, what were you thinking? I, um, well, oddly enough, before I went in, I yeah. um, bought my ticket at the cinema. Um, it was an early morning showing. Oh, okay. So it's like 10 a.m. And, and I went and bought myself a cup of coffee and the young lady behind the counter said, are you here for Joker? And I said, yeah, obviously. <laughs> I said, have you seen it? And she said, no, not yet. So um, she said, let me know what you think on the way out. Okay. So, right. so on the way out, I wanted another cup of coffee. So I went back and I went back to the same coffee counter. And she said, what do you think of it? I said, I'll let you know in about three days. That's okay. Okay. I, I think it's, it's going to take me that long to <laughs> to digest it. Yes. So for it to percolate and simmer and, and for for it to try and like to, for, for ideas to form because there is so much going on in this film. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot. Yeah. I mean, this is a... You have to kind of remind yourself that this is a comic book character because 
from time to time because this is a very dark, serious, intense reading yes. of how this character, who when we meet him later on as a fully-fledged criminal, yeah. is a manic um, uh, sort of man who, who hand, uh, in charge of a criminal gang who just seems bent on mayhem. How do, yes. how do you get to that state? And this film really investigates um, the t- deterioration of someone's mental health Very and explains so, yes. it. And you see this unfold in great detail and graphic detail in the performance of Joaquin Phoenix. As you say, Steve, he completely occupies the film. And the storytellers take us back in time uh, and sl- I think relatively slowly unpeel the layers of explaining where this mental unwellness came from. So that you start off right at the very beginning of the film, you know, he's, he's getting some counseling. Yeah. So we know he's straight away, this guy's not well. Yes. And, and as the story develops, we, we get these clues about what happened earlier on in life. And it's not, I would say I found, I found it was a disturbing film to watch. Yes, it was. Because it, it, it presents a picture of he, it, this character whose name is, let's just remind ourselves, Arthur, Arthur Fleck. Fleck. Yeah. And, and he lives with his mother, Penny, played by quite beautifully mm. by Francis Conroy. Um, and they, they have um, a relationship which I have seen compared to the central relationship in Psycho. Psycho, yeah. Not completely unreasonable. And, and he does to a degree, we won't go into too much detail here, but he clearly straddles the reality and the fantasy world very, very slightly. There are moments, there's one moment with one particular relationship that you think is starting to emerge and you're going, hang on. That makes no sense. And then, then the rug is pulled out from underneath you. Yes. So, so he's clearly a very deeply troubled individual. Yeah. Turns out he's, he's, one of the reasons why he's as troubled as he is, is is because he's doped to the eyeballs on medication, which he possibly doesn't need, but it's mm. never quite made clear. Mm. And he and his mother have a fixation on a TV host. They, they do. They do. Um, and the mother has this parallel fixation yes. on the father of Bruce Wayne. Yes. Uh, so, the, so there is that. Uh, you're right. And, and of course, that's another big talking point of the film. The, the talk show host is played by Robert De Niro. Yes. And the and character, lot, what's the character's name? Murray Franklin. Yeah. And a lot's been made of the fact that here we have De Niro playing um, a character in a movie. A movie that in some ways is very similar to the, the famous Scorsese film, The King of Comedy. Yes. In which De Niro in that film played more of the Arthur Fleck type yes. character. Uh, and I think that, and I think it's been acknowledged that that's almost quite is quite deliberately done. In oh, a way. there's no. I mean, the, the fact that they've got Robert De Niro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, how can you not go there? Because yes. he's by far the heaviest hitter in terms of Hollywood celebrity. Mm-hmm. He's by mm. far the biggest name in the film. Mm. So there's no way that happened because nobody else was yes. available. Yeah, they they obviously picked De Niro yeah. to get the echo. Also, I mean, I've seen echoes of uh, comparisons with Taxi Driver yeah. as well. Yeah. So, Absolutely. So, so De Niro, even though he's not the De Niro of those films, he's no. very definitely the a more avunculate, although there's clearly a bit of a cynical edge to him as well. Mm. We won't go too deep into no. this because because but, that relationship is very pivotal in the film. Yes, but I think that by, by doing that, it brings out this feeling in the film and, and in the story of Joker being this outcast, yes. uh, being you know someone who, who society doesn't accept doesn't really understand yeah um which was is that taxi driver type role but yeah. all, actually also the king of comedy role very yeah. as well 
Um, and at the same time, and this is part of the arc of this story, is how through Arthur Fleck's actions, it, those actions begin to resonate in, the, in, a, in a city with it wreaked by deep divisions between the haves and the have-nots. Yes, very much so. And so you have this sort of re- this tension and some people actually latching on to Fleck. Yes. Um, I would say later, like you, I had to digest this some days later. And mm. later on, that aspect of the story got me thinking a bit more. And I, I was wondering how, how realistic... Well, not realistic. It's hard. You can't use the word realistic when you're talking about a comic book movie, can you? Applausible. Applausible. Um, yeah, I don't, and that's a good talking point because, hey, if you look around the world, we, we see mass movements all the time. Yes, of course. Um, and, and they're and not often, always necessarily irrational. Sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. No, and oftentimes they're, they're looking for a nucleus to, yeah. to, to coalesce around. And, and if you think about this, there's one particular very, very significant episode uh, on the subway. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, which, which then causes the the unrest that's fermenting within yeah. Gotham to start to, to coalesce around yeah. around Arthur. Yes. Even though he never looked for that, he was he never wanted it. It's it's, mm. al- it's almost like Brian in Life of Brian. Now that's a comparison we weren't expecting. No, okay. But it's, but it's that kind of thing where he was never looking for. Yeah. The celebrity. He was no. never looking to 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 lead a, a movement, and yet he very very clearly does. Well. I'm just thinking about that, Steve. He was he he had this fantasy yeah. of being a success. I think I don't think this spoils the story for our. our well, the char- I know where he you're going, a, and the character's called Joker. Yeah, he has a fantasy of being a stand-up comedian. Exactly. So, in that sense, he has this idea that he can be a um, a public figure, if you like. Yes. But it, it develops in a way we don't expect. No. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 what you've got at the heart of it then is is Joaquin Phoenix. Um, spending a terrifying amount of the, the film with his shirt off. Yes, I, and that yeah. Let's talk about that. I mean, what did you make of that? Well, I, I assume that that was not entirely um, done in post. I'm no. assuming that that was him on an extreme diet. I think I've I've heard him talk about that in an interview. Yeah, uh, and that's so. It's kind of he stripped bare. Yeah, he looks um, undernourished, sinewy and sinewy. wiry. And I couldn't help but notice. I don't know whether. Joaquin Phoenix has suffered an injury to a shoulder earlier in his yeah. life or a collarbone. One of the shoulders looks a little bit funny, not quite in sync with the other. But I, I, and it added to the sort of the sense of a broken man you, or you, someone broken down by society. You could always imagine he probably dislocated a shoulder for the film, oh, to, yeah. be, to be fair. Yeah. Because in that regard, it's a terrifyingly physical performance. It is. He, and he, he's, he, the character, there's an explanation of where the character's laugh comes from. Yes. It's cackled and uncontrollable. Yes. Um, so... You're right. It's physical. It's um, intense beyond belief. Yes. Uh, and it's. Did, I found it gripping. I did, did. I found it. Yeah. So did his character ever tip over into caricature? Did it ever get too much? Or? Well, I think that I think that this is where some of the later criticism of the film has emerged. Yes. That that it it it, it d- does do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see how you could you could think that, but he is such a larger than life character to begin with. Yes. Um, in the world of comic books and graphic novels and yes. in an unreal world of Batman and, and his villains anyway. Yes. Um, that's one of the tricky things about this film, actually, Steve, that if, if you can watch this film and for large parts of it, the fact that it is based on a superhero villain seems 
you, your yeah. mind's not going there because it's such a gritty depiction. Yeah, well, well I mean, the, the, the arc that, that we have to go in, his, not just in this film, but the, the overall arc of, like you said, back back in the 60s, and you got the Adam West. Yeah. Um, Cesar Romero. That's the one, yeah. Yes. And it, it was high camp, wasn't yes, it? Absolutely. And, and, and as well as Batman and Robin being high camp, so obviously were the Riddler and the Penguin and, of course, the Joker. Yes. And, and they were absurd. And they were meant to be absurd. Yes. And it, it's only in much more recent years when we've had the likes of, oh, what's his name? I mean, Michael Keaton, is, yes, yes. Uh, for example. Yes. It's only when we've had these guys playing the Batman that the, they've tried to make it darker and tried mm. to turn him into the Dark Knight. This used to be a cartoon character. But also, he's never been a superhero. He's never no, had no. powers. Yes. He's always been a real man who's got, he relies on technology yeah, to do this. And his wealth. Uh, well, yes, exactly, the, the, which funds the technology. Yes. And, and, so, it's a, and so as a result, his villains mm. don't have powers. His villains are much more grounded and rooted. Mm. So as a result, you've got a much more real person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what he's, he's depicted as being utterly human and very, very flawed and broken yes. as a human. And that's yes. who he is consistently all the way through the film. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you, you, you have this, this very, very broken man who... Um, I, suddenly discovers again with that one subway incident yes. which we shall not dwell on in too much detail mm. but it's quite pivotal in the story he suddenly discovers that he has agency in his own life yes. in a way that he never realised he could have Yeah, because that, that episode follows what looks like what's going to be the last straw in his downfall mm. if you think if you remember the hospital scene mm, mm. Uh, looks like that's going to be where everything's going to collapse and then suddenly this is where he sort of starts to emerge as something powerful it's, it's almost like a it's almost like some sort of a twisted butterfly emerging from a cocoon there, there you go I'll go with that yeah I like that and um, and yeah and the um, the serious it's an interesting I can see why that's been so divisive because it, you could just laugh it off and say it's so ridiculous. Yeah. But I don't know. Um, terrible things happen in the world. You know, I would, you know what I mean? I mean, you could, yeah. you, you could, it's outrageous in one, this, it, 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 it builds to a, a point of an awful, awful act of violence, uh, which um, the, the story allows. It allows this act of violence to become a catalyst for Joker get, going to an even bigger or higher level of awareness yes. in the public yes. mind. Um, but maybe that's not so outrageous if you apply to your, if you you know apply your mind to what else is going around in the yeah. world in recent times. Well, maybe that's yeah, uh, yeah. Not and so just outrageous. to mention that yes. one scene, we're, we're trying to avoid spoilers here, yeah. but there there is a very very shockingly violent scene. Yes, it is. And the, and and what's what's astonishing about it, in my opinion, was I was watching that scene thinking oh dear lord i know what's coming yeah oh no it's oh no it's coming and even though i knew i could tell yeah it was still shockingly shocking it was when it happened it was and what you're right and the initial act of violence yes is followed up by another one i mean in, the incident involves not just one one action being take, taken yes. place. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being a bit crazy. Understandably, but, but, yeah. but the, I guess the point was that the, jo the Joker character at that point had crossed some line yeah. where consequence no longer mattered. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, yeah. So I think um, 
you know, if, if you've been a fan of the, the campy 60s programs, you're not, you're going to, you're not, this may not be your cup of tea. No, the, the, the evolution is astonishing, it is. isn't it? But if, if you've enjoyed the Christopher Nolan take on these yes. characters, I think you'll, you'll, there is some sort of a progression. It's deeper and darker still, uh, but, and, it, and it's, uh, yeah, there's not many light moments in this film at all, but it's, I found it uh, impactful. Yes. And um, extremely thought provoking and disturbing and quite chilling, yeah. but compelling. Yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, if you, if that's your cup of tea, I'm, I, I'm, I'm recommending it, but it yeah. may not be everyone's cup of tea. Yeah. So I think the best thing you say is, if you like that sort of thing, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Then you'll like that sort of thing. <laughs> that's absolutely but it's true. Not, there's not. I mean, seriously, like you say, it's going to split opinion. So, so listen. Should we go go to music for a yes, second? Yes. How we do that? You went. You went to the concert last night didn't you I did I did you went to see um, Postmodern Jukebox yes regular visitors to our show very regular as, as we discussed with um, now what was her name I had this queued up this is absolutely embarrassing this is <laughs> I mean, you know what I've just read Aubrey Logan uh-huh. who we, we spoke to on Crave a few months ago talking about the, the, the visit that was coming up and right. she was excited to be here yes so tell me well, w- were they worth seeing yes and Aubrey Logan is incredible. Yeah, her voice and her range and her power are amazing. Well, actually, I'm going to rephrase the question: Were they worth seeing, or were they worth hearing? Ah, okay. There we go. Okay. So, Thank I you. <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, that knows I'm having a biscuit well, while, while Simon tells us about yeah, well, you box. Um, the, the the hard truth of this is that mm-hmm. this was a fantastically entertaining band, mm-hmm. and by evening's end, mm-hmm. they completely won over the audience. Mm. But to do that, mm-hmm. they had to overcome significant problems with the sound. So, what was the issue? Was it was it and unclear? Was it too loud? What was so, I I should say that I was sitting. I was very fortunate to get um, tickets very near to the front. Right. And um, postmodern jukebox consists of a, a a band and and we're rotating vocalists throughout the show. Right. Yeah. And they're doing these sort of twenties jazzy style renditions of well known songs. Right. Yeah. yeah. Lots of pizzazz and. We'll get to that, but especially in the first part of the show, when the the, uh, the, the singers, especially the, the female singers, were belting it out, I could not really pick up the lyrics at all. They just got lost in the in the mix. Oh dear! Uh, and um, part of the way through the first set, I thought, well, is this just me? Is my hearing playing up? And I checked with the concert goers on either side of myself, and they too said, no, this is hard. Uh, we're not really hearing what they're saying. Singing. Uh, there was an intermission. Yep. Um, I did a quick little survey and I checked with a couple of people further back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one couple said it was all right, but two or three others said, "No, nah, we're struggling here." Yeah, yeah. And um, and then I, one of my fellow concert goers, right sitting next to me, kindly showed me a Facebook post of oh, yeah. someone who they'd been in contact with, who'd been at the same venue. Oh yeah. The seeing the same band. Yeah. The year before. Yep. Sitting in almost the same place. Oh dear. Complaining of the same thing. Oh, that's not good, is it? Now, so time that's for, that's so that's that's particularly disappointing. Time for a new sound engineer. Well, something, but I would, having said all that, I think that after the intermission, there was a noticeable improvement. So maybe there were, and in fact, one of the complaints, mm-hmm. someone called out a complaint at the end of the first song. Mm. Um, someone up in the balcony, right near the front, actually yeah. called out, "We can't hear anything." Oh dear. And, and to their credit, the, the MC of the band yeah. um, said, oh, okay, thanks for letting us know. We'll see if we can fix that. 
<laughs> well, and then probably didn't. Well, I think eventually in the intermission yeah. they must have been able to do some tweaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've got to put that on the record, and that's a, it was a it's a great shame, and it yeah. did detract, especially in the beginning of the concert. But I I also have to say that this is a very very accomplished, inventive, energetic, passionate, and creative bunch of performers. Right. And um, people absolutely enjoyed it by, by the show's end. There's n- absolutely no doubt about that, as did I. Yeah. And if there was an opportunity to see them again, especially if I knew that um, it was in a venue where the sound could be well controlled, yep. I would absolutely see them again. Fair enough. So, so it's that kind of, I'm saying two things in the same breath there, Steve. No, I know, I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Um, so, so tell us about the music. You say it's, it's jazz? Well, uh, it's not just jazz. It's swingy and jazzy, yeah. um, soulful at times. Um, you've got... Um, so they're taking um, a mixture of songs, some of which I was familiar with and some I wasn't, um, like Elton John's Benny and the Jets. Oh, yeah. And that Aubrey sang. Mm-hmm. Completely reinvented that. Um, the showstopper for me, and I think for a lot of other people, was um, a song... Sung by the the guy a guy called Casey Abrams who's yeah. mainly the MC but oh, right. yeah. but also sang and he did a fantastic version of version version versions <laughs> version of Creep um, Radiohead is it Radiohead yes it is isn't it yeah. and that was wonderful wonderful um, that they um, David Simmons Jr is another standout singer from the band and he did a a great um, version of um, don't let me down. That was that was really really good. So there was some, and this band, you know, the the, the cast is changing all this all the time between songs. Yeah. Um, Aubrey does this wonderful thing where she belts out a, a vocal, pauses, does a cartwheel as you do, as you do, yeah. picks up a trombone and does a trombone solo. It's just showing off at that point, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and um, and there's lots of other physical. Acts going on and, and almost slapstick in a way. Okay. They're running up and one a couple of times they go up into the balconies and play their instruments up in the balcony right, with right, the audience, yeah. that type of thing. And you've got also, I should mention, um, uh, Demi Remick, mm-hmm. who was a tap dancer. Oh. And boy, she can dance. And she comes on quite quite often from time to time and helps illustrate some of the songs. So it's there's a lot going on, a lot of high energy. Yeah. Um, a lot of, they did very well to play to the audience. And in the show that I was there last night, um, there was a, a father with a young daughter, like mm-hmm. maybe, I don't know, four or five, maybe, okay. maybe even. And she was really getting into it. And yeah. many times the band would come over and gesture to her and come down and give her a high five oh, or whatever. Nice. So they play to the audience very well. So you get um, the feeling they actually enjoy doing what they're doing. Oh, they? abs- yes, absolutely. I think for me, um, uh, Aubrey and, this, and David were, yeah. for me, the... They were a bit above the others in vocal ability, yeah. But altogether, really, really good. Um, and oh, it would have been so much better if the mix had been better. But there you go. So well, I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving it a big cross in that respect. But I, I would see them again. Well, and I the, think, yeah, I would. Well, I mean, the, the good news is they seem to come to New Zealand about once a year, yeah, don't they? That's right. Yeah. So, so yeah, give them a go next time. Yeah, I reckon. No, I, I think you would enjoy it. Then, then next time I'll go. When you were here before. Couldn't look you in the eye. You're just like an angel. Your skin makes me cry. You float like a feather in a beautiful.
one-time Genesis guitarist will be coming to Auckland next year, so I caught up with him recently, and we talked. Is it Steve? Uh, yeah, speaking. Oh, great! Hi, this is Steve McCabe from Crave here. Thanks very much for taking our call this morning. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I've had a lot of strange uh, calls, robot calls, I call it. Um, a lot of false starts. So I'm just wondering. I'm ready to talk. Great. Well, talk great. Well, I, pr I promise you, I'm not an extremely well-programmed AI bot. I'm actually a real person down here. Okay. Right. Well, well, thanks very much for talking to us today, Steve. I understand yeah, you're going to be coming to pleasure. New Zealand very shortly. Um, That's to, right. Yes, I to, will be. Yeah, it'll be. Um, it'll be coming up shortly, indeed, next year. Yes, yeah. and you're going to be revisiting selling England by the pound. Indeed, yes, selling England by the pound, and it will be uh, uh, spectral mornings as well, and plus some stuff from uh, from At the Edge of Light, the latest album as well. So get all three of those. Yeah, great. Well, I mean, the, the first question has to be then: um, Why selling England by the pound? Tell us what's so special about that album that you want to revisit it in its entirety. Well, it's my favourite Genesis album. Um, uh, it's an album that uh, John Lennon said that at the time Genesis was one of the bands that he was listening to and that mm -hmm. was, you know, at that time um, so we were all proud of that um, yeah. I think it's the best Genesis album certainly the best album with Peter Gabriel um, and uh, I think it was a milestone for the band and the fact that someone that we've obviously been listening to ever since we were kids uh, it was important for us that suddenly you know we had the ear of um, the guy who was hugely influential for us, John Lennon. Um, yeah, I have to say, that's a fantastic name to drop, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, you can't, you know, you can't buy that, can you? No. I mean, it was ironic that we could, you know, we were touring in America at the time, but we were struggling to get any gigs between uh, New York and LA. We'd just done New York, and um, so we were, we were sitting around for. In the end, you know, two weeks in LA waiting for these club gigs to come through, and uh, we couldn't get a gig anywhere, you know, from from coast to coast in in the interim. Despite the fact that Lennon said that, you know, we were we were happening for him. So, uh, you know, how does that work these days? You would tweet that information, but yes. Um, so it, it you know, but that went into a black hole. <laughs> that information at the time, and uh, fair enough. And I'm just informing people about that now. Well, well, you would, wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it was a favourite album of mine, um, and um, I've been touring it. Um, in uh, I, I've just done a, a tour of seven weeks in Europe and Scandinavia. 
about 18 countries in seven weeks, and we've been playing it everywhere, this set, and it's been going down very, very well. I, I also play um, um, a track that was intended to go on the album. It was an unfinished song that, that Peter Gabriel uh, uh, um, was trying to get us to do all those years ago, and um, it didn't make it onto the album, but I said to him, many years after the event, I said, I, I really like the song, and it's a shame we didn't do it. Do you mind if I if I finish it off? And he said, no, go ahead. So it's a Gabriel Hackett composition, and um, we recorded it with Paul Carrick singing the lead vocal on an album called Genesis Revisited Number One. Uh, something I did in the mid 1990s, um, but we do it live, and I include it as part of the selling England thing in its in complete form, uh, like a deleted scene, so a bit like director's cut uh, deleted scene. Right. And it's been going down very well with people because there's uh, the feel that it, it's a song of then, yes. but it's also um, a song, a song of now. We do we do a modern interpretation of it. Well, I mean, let, let's face it. You know, if we bring up the Beatles again. They they they've still managed in the last couple of decades to pull out um, archive record, recordings, so why shouldn't you guys? Well, there's that, yeah. So, you know, it, it, it moves forward, but not, not in, in the way that people think of of groups. Um, you know, we, we did do a, a compilation album of, of, of hits that the band did, but then we included um, three solo tracks by each of, each of the guys that comprised the band um, 71 to to 75 in fact and um so it was a mixture of, of um you know solo things and, and and group things to try and give you know the whole the whole deal oh, fair enough so you say selling england by the pound was your favorite genesis album and it's certainly one of the most um, yeah. cohesive albums that, that that lineup did i mean it's, it's one of your classic um concept albums um, and, and obviously, John Lennon's endorsement is going to count for an awful lot. What else was about it that album that, that really speaks to you? Why why that not say, for example, the Lamb lies down on Broadway? Well, um, I think that the Lamb lies down on Broadway. Um, conceptually, Pete had the idea for the story. And meanwhile, we were all writing the music, but we were working in separate rooms. Um, I think that. Um, Lamb lies down. I think very much it's it's Pete's baby. Oh, okay. Um, whereas I think I think um, selling by the pound, <clears throat> I feel it's more mine. To be honest, okay. I feel very close to it. Um, I think that um, when I was writing stuff for the band, it tended to be uh, riff driven at that time. So I would say we could use this bit, we could use this bit, and I I came up with a riff that that was the basis. For the song called "I Know What I Like," mm -hmm. um, and it was it was a group reject in 1972. The following year, Phil and I were still playing it as, as a jam. Uh, the band joined in. It became the first hit single for the band. Um, so I sort of put it on on a kind of "I Told You So" list, and um, there are various other things, lots of other moments that I'm proud of as, as guitar driven. Uh, moments on the album, so I think that it was probably closer in spirit to what I'd wanted um, um, from the band than perhaps um, the other guys. But then again, it's a very quirky album, it's very English, um, there's a lot of social comment in there, but then there's humour, there's pantomime, there's all sorts of stuff, there's the Battle of Epic Forest, which is... <clears throat> 
um, almost like a carry-on film put to uh, to music. Um, uh, and then there's the great sort of sweeping epics, you know, Dancing with the Moonlit Night, with all its social comment and, and, and the kind of pan-genre approach from Scottish playing song to Elgarian to uh, jazz fusion, jazz rock, um, with a bit of Mozart thrown in, and, and the quietest jam I think ever recorded by a rock band um, at the end of it. And that's just the first number. Yes. So it's got a, a huge sweep of different types of, many different styles, and I think that may have been what a, appealed to John Lennon. Or it might have been just, you know, the chorus, the irony of the chorus of I know what I like for all, for all we know. We don't know why, but um, I would like to have had that conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you talk about it being the first actual um, hit single, and, and I yeah. guess Early Genesis wasn't a terribly hit single-oriented band, but... Um... No, it was, it was an accidental hit single, yes. Yes. But, but fo following your departure... Um, yeah, that's definitely a direction they went. Do you, do you ever feel like you missed out a little bit that you could have been a top of the pop star? Yeah, but it wasn't really me that you know. I think that um, uh, what I wanted was a, a band that was going to be and remain musically adventurous. Right. Uh, the idea of of getting rid of the detail and getting rid of the solos and and making it less. Oh, okay. Less detailed. I wouldn't say less virtuosic, but less detailed. Right. Isn't really, what I was after. I, 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 I didn't want to do that. You know. I mean, yeah, you could swap places with the Bay City Rollers and say, yes, you know, you could have all these hits, and you know, and little girls will love you. But I, I thought we were making music for for people who were, you know, maybe the idea of musicians, musicians. You know that. Yeah aspect so i think that era of the band was hugely influential for people who tell me that they took up guitar because of this or they took up drums because of phil or or indeed decided to dress up and be an androgynous because of, of peter gabriel um but all i know is is that it became influential and i keep keep meeting people who who are in successful bands who say yes this was an influence on me right uh, you know um, whether it's the tapping that I came up with that, that influenced Eddie Van Halen, or um, Brian May was telling me, and we later recorded stuff that I'd been an influence on him with with the track Musical Box from 1971, you know, which ends up with a three-part harmony guitar solo at the end. I thought he was the guy who invented uh, um, harmony guitar solos, but apparently he points the finger at me. Oh wow! So, um, so I'm, I'm, I, you know, as I say, thrilled to influence other other musicians um, and I get very proud of that I get proud of the fact that Yehudi Menuhin used something of mine that I'd just written for, for guitar and flute and, and, and used it with, with a film that he made on English Gardens and all the other pieces that we used on it were you know, Bach and Mozart and, and all this kind of stuff so um, um, and it's nice when you meet people like Nigel Kennedy and they're aware of some of the names of, you know, the more esoteric albums that you've done, because I hadn't just done one thing, but he was aware of an album I'd done called Momentum, for instance. So um, I guess a lot of it is by stealth. Fair enough. Which, you know, hey. Some things might be well-known, other things not so well-known. Uh, the thing I did with Steve Howe, the, the, the oh. band we had called GTR, um, uh 
Clive Davis signed us to uh, Arista Records when he was riding high with Whitney Houston, and um, we had great success in uh, mainly in the states mm. with that. Um, but um, you know that was much more mainstream and much more um, MTV orientated, and um, so in a sense, I was proving that it wasn't just a fluke; that it didn't just happen. Because right. I was a member of Genesis, um, yeah. um, but you know there are other things that I've done, which um, I, I, I do not imagine it's going to get get played on, on on radio. That's not that's not the point with with uh, many of the things that I do. So oh, I like to, uh, I like to experiment. I like to take chances. I think risk is is usually um, important, and I like to work with people from all over the world. So on the last album I did at the, at the Age of Life, we've got. 20 or so people from all over the world, from Azerbaijan to India to Iceland to Hungary. Um, and, and it goes on, you know, uh, Swedish people are on it, American people, English, you. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and uh, that idea of, of um, you know, in, in, in a world that's politically headed towards uh, um, anti-globalization and the re-emergence of, of nationalism, I, I do stuff that flies in the face of that, say, well, you know, Excellent. musicians can afford to ignore borders. What we do is we have a fellowship. You know, if if you can play or sing really well or write something great, you're in. Uh, we we don't care where, where where you come from. And I guess you know, um, further to that, it, it, you know, um, the heart surgeon that may save your life one day. It doesn't really matter where he comes from. The idea that we should be celebrating the best in the world is what I'm what I'm interested in. Can't argue with that. Now, see, you, you dropped some fantastic names in there. You went from I think, Brian May to Yehudi Menuhin. You covered quite some ground. But there's there's yeah. one name you did drop that just absolutely intrigues me. Uh, you mentioned the Bay City Rollers, and I tell you, I would give my right arm to see Genesis covering Saturday Night. <laughs> there you go. Well, that would be wouldn't that be interesting? Uh, so far, uh, um, Genesis, although they've approached me from time to time, have, have resisted all attempts to to reform. Um, so I, I have to always assume it's not really a serious offer. Uh, meanwhile, I do the music in, that I think works, and I've cherry-picked across many of the albums that we did together. Yeah. Um, but I just, as I say, this year I've started doing this thing, which is I'm going to do this, this one particular album because I think it, it's the best uh, uh, one that we did. So I, I make no apologies for, for doing that. So half the show is, is, is really given over to that. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, a lot of the the, um, the musicians who you can find your influence on. The one name I noticed you didn't mention, because it's one of my personal favourite bands from my youth, was Marillion. And when I was listening recently again to Singing, Singing by the Pound, I was surprised by how much I could I could hear the, 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 the basics of um, Stephen Rothery's guitar sound in there. Who else do you think's carrying the, um, the torch for you guys these days? Well, uh, I know Steve Rothery. He and I are great pals, and, and um, we've recorded together. And uh, funny enough, we've been jamming away on things recently, oh, and we yeah. hope it will emerge at some point as an album. Oh, that'd be fantastic! Um, other other people that that, that I've influenced—it's far and wide. I mean, I wrote some stuff for Evelyn Glennie, um, uh, played with her live. We did a few shows. Um, it's impossible to say because sometimes I, I meet um, musicians who are classical musicians, and um, you know they might pick up on something in in particular. Yeah. And I've worked with orchestras in recent years as well, um, 
very keen on working with uh, with orchestras. I think that it helps to broaden Rock's shoulders to to do that. Um, I've recorded bits of Bach. I've um, I did an album of Eric Satie stuff uh, with my brother John. Um, so I've, I've yeah, you know, I've I've done a few things that rock guitarists are perhaps not supposed to do, but. Um, well, let me ask but you. I do love music in all its forms. Well, in that case, let me ask you. Um, you know, you, you're going to have a very, very long flight down to New Zealand very shortly. What music will you be listening to on the way? What are you, what are you relaxing to at the moment? Oh goodness me! Well, I listen to a lot of classical stuff. I must admit, I, I, I do listen to that. But then I do like it when, when people um, mix it all up. Um, so. Um, there are a number of people that I listen to. You might not be aware of them, but I sometimes work with a band called Jabe. They're um, a Hungarian sort of world fusion band, and, and, and Hungary functions like a sort of cultural crossroads of, of, of musical Europe. And um, I I get to work with people with them. Sometimes it might be a bass player from Africa, um, a tar player from Azerbaijan. And as I pick up on people and work with them myself, I, I'll, I'll make the recommendation to them. So maybe they'll work with the sitar player, Shima Mukherjee, who's a great virtuoso. Um, lovely working with her um, a while back. So uh, I can't tell you what I'll be listening to at the time. I'll probably just step through things and listen to everything from Bach to blues and, um, and modern bands too. No, oh, fair enough. I mean, I mean, you, your visit here is a year away yet, so obviously you know, yes. it sounds like there's plenty of time for you to discover new stuff. So let me yeah. ask you then, um, when you do get here, um, tell me about your, yeah. your, your equipment these days. What are you playing? What am I playing? Well, I'm using um, uh, a Fernandez guitar. Funny enough, the guitar that I've got and the one that I've been using live um, is one that um, used to belong to Gary Moore. Um, the late great Gary Moore. Yeah. We we shared the same guitar tech at one point. Oh, okay. And, uh, uh, Fernandez built. They made me a gift of, of a, a gold top Les Paul shaped guitar, which okay. had stainer pickups in, plus um, um, a Floyd Rose tremolo arm. Now that was partly to my spec, but then they sent me this, this gold top version of it, which looked exactly like my Les Paul, but um, you know had these other sort of uh, facilities, these onboard things, and. Um, I didn't know, but they said the, the same thing to, to Gary Moore, and um, it was Graham Lilly, the guitar tech, who, who would come on tour with me, and he, he'd bring one of those guitars as a spare for me at, um, if mine went down, and um, if I broke a string, for instance. And, and then when Gary sadly passed on, mm -hmm. uh, I asked him beforehand, I said, look, if you're thinking of, of getting rid of this guitar, you know, I'd, I'd be very interested in it. And when Gary passed on, he said, well, I thought you should be the first person I'd come to and offer you this. And um, so I, I I, played that. So that's, that's an important part of the kit. Right. That's a um, wonderful story. The guitar has got some history. Yes. Um, it's got the sustainer pickup in, so it means that you can... Um, you, you don't have to... Um, go up to your amp or your amp head to get feedback mm -hmm. you, know, you can hold a conversation <laughs> over the top and and, and he's still hear the guitar well that, know, see, that's the gary moore back. legacy there isn't it that's right yeah and and um so sustain was important to me uh for years and uh, so that's an important part of the kit the other thing uh, i'm using is i'm 
I've got Marshall cabinets. I was using Marshall amps for many years, but I've now switched to Engel. Okay. Um, and so I've got a couple of hundred watt Engel amps, um, and um, I'm using Marshall cabs. And uh, I've got foot pedals, and I and I kind of uh, change those every every now and again. So there's a, there's a Sounds amp, there's a there's a Yellow Box Line Six. Uh, volume pedal, that's very important, and um, various different types of echo units. And, uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I still enjoy working with my toys. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you've always had a fairly richly crafted sound. You've never been one just simply to put a, a pair of humbuckers through a Marshall stack and, and hope for the best. You... Well, I used to do that back in the day uh, when I was um, an aspiring blues guitarist, but um, like many people in the late 60s, the the blues boom really died on me, and luckily music was on the turn, and mm -hmm. this pan-genre approach, the idea of any style goes, was starting to um, uh, happen, I think as a result of the Beatles working with, with orchestras, right? Um, where you've got this sort of instinctive approach of, of Lennon McCartney and Harrison, and then you've got uh, George Martin, who's old school and, and rightly proud of it, and with you know the ability to be able to clothe those songs in something in more formal clothes if you like yes um and i think that that, that paved the way for bands such as moody blues Purple harem um uh king crimson later elp yes and genesis of course um to use you know stuff that was very driven by, by, by chord shapes and um, if it wasn't academic people in these bands had obviously cast an ear to everything from uh, uh, classical music to church music to jazz to, to blues to almost anything and tried to distill it into this kind of all-embracing form that we now uh, call prog but the idea of true progressive stuff was applied as much to jazz, you know, yeah. at one time when that, when that, when they were doing free jazz in the 1960s, the atonal stuff, the really out there stuff. Yeah. People were calling it um, Roland Kirk, um, John Coltrane, Ornette Coleman. They were calling it um, progressive. Of course, the term came up much earlier in the early 1900s and it was Richard Strauss talking about Elgar's work, The Dream of Gerontius and describing it as progressive Right. so what's the difference between progressive and program music which tells a story and progressive tells a story very often Well, well one criticism I've heard levelled at, uh, at progressive and you use the word academic in your description there yeah. traditionally you know, yeah. rock, rock and blues have been seen as very very visceral music and whereas progressive often seems yes. to be a bit more cerebral how would you respond to that? Yep. Yeah. Well, I would say that I like to leave room for improvised solos um, to take place so that so that there is a freshness. So uh, if you honour the form and spirit, um, I don't think you can go wrong. There's nothing wrong with having a, having a great song. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, with having those milestones set out in front of you with the journey that you take an audience on. But, but beyond that, there's got to be those moments where you allow yourself to absolutely surpass yourself or to fail when it comes to a solo and um, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that so you're borrowing from jazz you're borrowing, borrowing from blues which are you know great rootsy um, 
when you're firing from the hip um, and it's not too considered. You, you've got once to get it right. And, and I love that. And all the guys that I work with live have got that ability to suddenly, if they want, they can all turn on the dial and become a jazz band. Right. But they happen to be great at that. Now listen, I'm I, I'm sorry to have to do this to you, but the, you know this is inevitable, right? Yeah. Any anytime yeah. you get an interview with with somebody who's built as as Steve Hackett, the Genesis legend, obviously this is a question that's going to have to get asked. And you've hinted about it, at it earlier, but I'm going to want to probe a bit further. Are we ever going to see right. the five of you getting back together, realistically? Well, I'm up for it. All I can say is I'm up for it. Okay. And, um, uh, I've noticed the others are more cautious, and they say, "Well, I wouldn't rule it out." And I've heard a lot of this. I wouldn't rule it out stuff. Well, yeah. um, I would be very happy to rule it in. Meanwhile, I honour the work that we did together, and it's politics-free. So uh, it's, it's, it's one version of, of the Genesis story. Uh, the whole story, of course, is all those people that were in and out in the ranks of that band, and, um, you know, there might be five or perhaps more were, were more well-known than, than the rest, but, you know, there have been 20-odd people that have been in and out the ranks. Most of them are still alive. Yes, and, and, and obviously when people refer to um, Genesis, obviously the Genesis we're talking about in that context is going to be the five-piece that did albums like, for example, um, Selling England. Selling England by the Pound, Nursery Crime, Foxtrot, yeah. um, Life Down on Broadway, um, and then when Peter left, A Trick of the Tail, um, uh, Wind and Wuthering, and, and Seconds Out, you know, plus, you know the old yeah. compilation and, and, and the Genesis live album and, and all of that. So um, there's quite a lot of stuff. There is, there. yeah. And yeah. Speaking of Peter Gabriel leaving, a quick question for you. Were you ever tempted to try and put your hand up to take over vocals, or was Phil Collins always the natural choice? No, I'd always encourage uh, Phil to be the one, and and um, he'd already recorded the very first thing that I was writing for the band. He was actually the lead singer, and he sounded remarkably like like Pete. Um, so I knew we had a great singer in in the ranks. And I remember, I remember one day because I I really didn't know what the power of his voice was like, but you know we just pulled up to get some petrol, and he was just singing in the back of the van. Everyone else got out, and I said, hey, you've got a really great voice. You sound a bit like Steve Winwood. He said, oh, do you think so? <laughs> you know, and uh, and he was quite shy about it then, but um, but he is a great singer, and um, and it was great to have worked with him, and it's great to know that he's doing uh, gigs gigs again now. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, we, we were a band that happened to have a couple of, a couple of great singers. Um, I... To be honest, I I don't really think I have a Genesis voice. I have more of a of a it's a different style. Um, uh, there's a track on on the last album that I did, which is Beasts Beasts in Our Time, and uh, in, in and uh, it's more like a ballad style. You know, it's, it's, right. Um, um, I wouldn't say my voice was operatic. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. But you know, I I tend to listen to people like Roy Orbison, and I think. You know, there's a singer for you. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So, when when a singer can 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 be a crooner, can fade into the note. Um, I I think you know certain people like Freddie Mercury had that. I mean, I don't really think of him as as a rock singer. No. Give him perhaps as a as a, almost like a, like an opera singer. Um, and it's 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 a different effect. You know, I'm I'm not sure he could have sung the Genesis stuff. Right. Um, 
It would it would have sounded different. Would it have sounded strong? I don't. Know. I think you've got to have the right song with the right with the right singer. But Nat Silver does it does a great job of doing both the Peter Gabriel stuff and the and the Phil Collins stuff and manages to be chameleon like and sound like uh, each of them in in the, in the right way. So he's got that really sort of big sounding voice. It's yeah. like a brass instrument. You know, mine's more like a sort of wood woodwind instrument. I, I do sing things, and I love doing vocal harmonies and um, and all of that. But you know, I I think I'm more more of a balladeer. Fair enough. And I can let rip, but it's not very pretty. <laughs> well, I mean, the the obvious choice for a vocalist for you would, I guess, be John Anderson. Well, it's, it's a funny thing. I've spoken to John um, from time to time, and. Um, He's a very sweet guy, very talented, and of course, incredibly iconic. Um, not just his work with Yes, but you know the stuff that he's done on his own and uh, and with other people. And um, funnily enough, the, the stuff that he sang on on on, on Lizard with uh, with King Crimson um, that seems to be the standout track on that on yeah. that album. So yeah, that, it, it's it's very interesting. He he. He is a great singer, and of course I've worked with a number of the Yes people. Yes. Um, Chris Squire and I did a whole album together called Squack It, and we used to show up on each other's things. So, um, he, you know, late great Chris Squire. Um, and so I've worked with quite a few people from Yes. At least four people I've worked with from Yes. i worked with Pete Banks, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. Um, uh, Chris Squire. Steve Howe I've worked with. I've not worked with, with, with John Anderson, uh, but I, I hope at some point we'll we'll do something together. That, that would be that would be nice. Fair enough. Well, listen, time is getting the better of us here, Steve. So thank you very much for talking to us. You'll be in New thank Zealand you. on um, Tuesday, the second of June. You'll be at the Great Hall in Auckland. We're looking forward to seeing you then. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Lovely talking to you. Thanks a lot, Steve. Bye bye. Cheers. Thank you. It's one o'clock and time for lunch. Bum da dum dee dum. When the sun beats down. On the bench, I can always hear them talk. There's always been Ethel. Jacob, wake up, we got to tidy your room now. And then Mr. Lewis listened to time that he was out on his own. Over the garden wall, two little lovers could go to you. Keep them moving, they shot. Right, so um, Steve is taking a wee break and Debbie is joining us again. Hi, Debbie. Hi, uh, Simon. Nice to have you back. Now, the reason you're here today is not to talk about young people's pop music. Right. Which is your... your um, it's just pop music. I know. I'm, I'm just being silly. <laughs> it's your niche on, the, on Crave, though. Right. Um, this is an interesting topic. Um, yeah. We're talking about a, a film called The Goldfinch. Right. Um, I've done a little bit of quick reading about it, so mm -hmm. I know that it, it came out as a book not that right. long ago. 
was a few years ago. Yeah, twenty thirteen, something like that. that. Yeah, I guess that's when you get to my age. That's not long. Okay. Um, <laughs> was well received, wasn't it? Uh, I won a Pulitzer Prize, so yeah, and, and, and on bestseller list. Yeah, so it was a well received book. Right, it's just been turned into a film, and the Goldfinch has at least on the level that you, if you can judge a film by its box office return, right. not done well right. at all. That is correct. And yeah. certainly some critics have been pretty harsh on yeah. it. But what did you think about it? I really loved the movie. Okay. And I was really scared to see the movie because I loved the book so ah. much. And, you know, oftentimes when you love a book and you see the movie, you're very disappointed. I've had at least one instance in my life where it basically ruined the book for me. Which is <laughs> oh, no. It was such a bad movie. I won't go into that. But, um, but no, so I was really nervous about seeing it. Um, but my daughter really, really wanted to. She also read the book and loved it. And she really wanted to see the movie. So, all right, I'll, I'll go with you. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. I loved it. Now, I'm coming at it from someone who read and loved the book yes so it was hard to transcend that while i was watching the movie but i I thought to myself now what would somebody think if they hadn't read the book right um you know it was a very long book i think it was uh kindle had it at an 18 hour read so it was a you know nice long book can i just ask Mm -hmm. you just for people who are not familiar with the story yeah i've seen it described as a like a coming-of-age story about oh, a yeah, young, young man. And just basically, what's the premise of the idea of, of, of the story? So, and this isn't a spoiler, obviously, no, yeah. but um, a young boy who I think he's 12 or 13, he and his mother go to uh, a museum while he's on his way uh, to his school to meet mm-hmm. with the principal about an issue. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, yeah. uh, tension between him, him and his mother at the time. Anyway, so they stop at the museum first because they're early. And... Uh, a bomb explodes in the museum and kills his mother. He survives um, along with another person mm-hmm. um, that we know in the book, that we come to know in the book. Yes. Um, who, whom he doesn't know at the time. So it's really about him and this painting that he takes with him from the museum. Again, that's not a spoiler. That's really, you know, early on. Early I think on. It's in that's the trailer fine. as yeah, well. Yeah, so, yeah. And it's the name of the book. So <laughs> is, the, is the name of the painting. Um, so it's really about him and this painting and the part that it plays in his life as well. It's really hard to describe mm. how the painting plays a part in his life, but it does. And it doesn't really, you don't really realize that as much until the end of the book. So the last like quarter of the book is very quick and a lot of, a lot of things happen with him and the painting in the end of the book. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's definitely a coming of age book. The character is very well developed. Um, so I think some of the things people had a problem with in the movie was his character came across as kind of dull mm-hmm. in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really kind of what he was like in the book. And, yeah. and that was part of the book. Yeah. He had a rich inner life kind of in the book. So yes, it was yes. a little, it might have been hard to, to, to translate that to into, translate film. into a film. Yeah. So having read the book, I was unable to transcend knowing. Yes, him. it's hard so, to unknow so yeah. something. Yes. Yeah. So that was hard. Um, there was a long section of the book that takes place in Las Vegas, and there's a real mood about that whole section of the book. It's very long. Um, it brings in another main character at mm-hmm. that point, and um, not a lot of really specific stuff happen. There's a couple of very specific things that happen in Las Vegas, but there's a lot of like mood stuff that goes right, on and, right. and some character development. And they skipped over a really big part of that in the movie. They kind of, okay. they, but on the other hand, I do believe that 
in the movie, they set the mood of Las Vegas so well that I thought that was fine. Like mm-hmm. I didn't miss mm. it being that because in the book it was quite a long, yeah, quite a long yeah, yeah. Uh, section. Is it a long film? Particularly? No, it's not particularly long. Yeah. I don't remember what the time on yeah, it is, but, but it's not particularly It didn't feel like it was hours and hours. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. It actually felt pretty quick because I felt like it moved along quite nicely. Yeah. The book did feel long. Yeah. I mean, you really did feel like it was a long book. Yes. It wasn't just a long book. It felt like it. And that section in Las Vegas felt very long, but, but good. Mm. But it really set this mood. And I thought the movie did that actually really well. I think because it was visual, obviously, yes, in a movie, yes. that they were able to set that mood well through visuals. Mm-hmm. Um that obviously you couldn't do in the book. So I thought that worked really well. I thought that the casting was brilliant. I was really yeah, nervous so about the casting. The, obviously the, the, the role of the young boy has to be, what's well, the pivotal role, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah but more pivotal is the, to me is the other main character ah, okay. in the book. Okay. Um, and I thought that the casting of both the young, um, can I use names? Or yeah, I think, I think you really can. Spoiler. The young Boris yes. and then the adult Boris. Right. They did great. I was okay. very nervous about that because he was really my favorite character in the book, mm-hmm. even though he wasn't the main character. Yeah. He wasn't Theo, which is the main character, yeah. the, the boy. You know. So why, why do you think, um, I mean, I was just having a quick look at, quick, quick yeah. look at some of the criticism, mm-hmm. and, it, and those who don't didn't like it right. felt that they didn't handle the source material. Um, but, yeah. but, you know, and um, some people said it was, um, Rolling Stone said it was... Um, it was adopt, adapting a, a, a notes version of the book instead of the book itself and playing... Well, that was always going to be the case. ...an unplayable series of scene snippets. Well, I don't think I that mean, that was the case. But it was always going to have to be short. I mean, they could yes. have opted maybe to make it into a seven-part miniseries. Right. You know, an hour yeah. each and make yeah. it a seven-hour movie. That, I think, you know, that would have worked really well. So that was one of the things I was nervous about when I went to right. see the film. I thought, how are they going to take this brilliant, really big, long, dense, amazing book yeah. and fit it into an hour and a half or whatever it was and but I felt like they did it like I said they skipped over a lot of not skipped over but they condensed a lot yes. of Las Vegas stuff and did it more through mood and mm. and well I guess it's it's one of those ones where um, if you're if you're aware of the story of the mm-hmm. book you will have a different experience I guess than as you said someone watching it for the very first time well the two ladies next to me yes so um, one thing of, of interest, I think, to notice that it was only playing in either Newmarket or Howick. Yeah. Um, I imagine that's still true. That was all we could find. Yeah. We went to see it in Howick in a small theater, and there were two ladies, older ladies, probably in their 70s, I'm guessing, Yeah. sitting next to me. My daughter was on my other side. And um, I heard them talking to each other just a little bit throughout the movie, you know, here and there. And so... As soon as the movie was over, I immediately turned to the woman next yeah. to me, and I said, what did you think of the film? Mm-hmm. She said, I loved it. And we spoke about it very briefly. Yes. And I said, did you read the book? And she said, I got halfway through the book and wasn't able to finish it. Because it does kind of get a little bogged down in the middle. I do admit that, even yes. though it's a brilliant book. Um, she said, now I'm going to go back and read the rest oh, of the book. That's interesting. So then I asked her companion, what did you think? And she said, oh, I loved it. And I said, did you read the book as well? And she said, no, I, did. I didn't read the book. So, so there's... Oh, that's a quite good cross-section of... Abuse. Yeah. That's, that's everything. That's my, that's my scientific study right there. <laughs> I'd love to see what my mom would think of the movie. She didn't go with us because she didn't want to travel to Howick. But yeah. she read the entire book oh, okay. and really didn't like it. Oh. So she would have been quite interesting. That would have been interesting. I uh, wish I had taken her yeah. with me because I would love to see what she thought of the movie. Because I've heard from other people. I have another friend who read the book and or tried to read the book twice. Only got about halfway through and, and just couldn't finish it. Um, and she's uh, she was a... 
um, English literature teacher. So I, I would love to, yeah. to see what she would think of the movie. Yes. She wanted to love the book. Isn't so, that interesting? Yeah, so I would love to see what she would think of the movie. I think that would be really telling, but... I, you know, I think one of the most interesting things about just hearing you talk about that mm. is that it's that, sort of, it's that lesson about, you know, not allowing yourself to be swayed completely by what other people think right. and being able to go along to something yeah. and, ha- and have your own view. And and there's enjoyment to be had in all sort of manner of, of forms of art. That, and just because yeah. one other person doesn't like it, well, that's yeah. their opinion. <laughs> you know, so what I would recommend to our viewers is if you're up for it, read the book. It's amazing. Right. I would say that the movie is a beautiful companion to the book. Right. It made me almost love the book more, which Isn't is... It? Unusual. Yeah. You know, that's so strange. But if you haven't read the book, I still suggest you read the, uh, see the movie and then let us know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be great to hear some other people's yeah, views. I would really like to see yeah. what, what our viewers would you, have thought of yeah, the movie, cool. whether or not they've read the book, whether or not they liked the book. Because it was like one of those Marmite books. You either loved it or hated it. Because I've heard of other people who said they just didn't like it, but heard from quite a few people who loved it. And the people who loved it, Loved it. Really I'm really passionate about okay. it. I'm going to get myself a t-shirt that says Theo and Boris. <laughs> I just love that book and I love the movie. In fact, I'll probably see the movie again. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I'll probably wait until it comes out on ah, DVD. All right. Cool. Yeah, so. so that's The Goldfinch. Yes. Fantastic. Debbie, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Simon. Cheers. All right, so that was the goldfinch. Um, Debbie's left us. Steve's back, and the, the game of yep. musical chairs continues. Absolutely. Um, so, so it sounds like I've got a film to go and see. It sounds like I've got a film to go and see. You're on the yes. goldfinch. Um, I hope it's still on for a little bit. But as Debbie was saying, when, when it comes back, you know, on a Blu-ray or whatever, oh, yes. it'll be picked up by Netflix or somebody, and we'll get a chance to see it if we miss it at the cinema. Well, apparently, it's very easy to miss at the cinema, as she was saying. Yes. Yeah. So, so look, uh, this is um, Steve. I noted on as you do, you keep us all up to date on um, CravePodcast.com with announcements of tours yes. and so forth. But actually, the big news um, in the last little while has been a tour that was meant to be, but yes, it's no longer. Long, it's an unannouncement. <laughs> yes. So, so the, the big news that we had earlier in the year was that Metallica were coming to town mm. with Slipknot in tow as support. And um, then just a couple, a few, not long ago, about a week or so ago, we got the news that um, band member James Hetfield has checked into rehab. Now, there was almost immediately on social media, people whinging on about how it's terrible, that he's not, you know, they're letting the fans down. But you know what? If the guy's not well, the guy's not well. Mm. And and just because it's rehab and not like an exploded appendix or something, he's getting grief for it. No, <laughs> if, he, if he needs to get himself sorted, he needs to get himself sorted. And who knows, he'll come back better than ever next year. Yeah. We'll hope so. Yeah. So, that, 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 so that's the announcement there's very very little actually coming out in terms of music yes but we have films coming don't we we do and um we were talking about joker earlier on which is you know kind of a pulp fiction story isn't it mm. and there's another one coming up very soon um with a what, bit of a history to it um a sci-fi i think you could say the first one or two were regarded as classics of their type mm-hmm. this is the terminator series mm. fallen yeah. into, fallen into disrepute in more recent times. Well, we'll drag down into disrepute, yeah. to be fair. Um, despite the efforts of some quite big cast members in yep. some of the more recent films, like Amelia Clark from Game yes. of Thrones yes. and Christian Bale, and but it, they just went off track somehow. Yes. And certainly lost box office um, appeal. Yeah. What's interesting about this latest one, I think it's called Dark Fate. Yeah. Not a very promising title, I have to say. 
is that they've reunited several people from the earlier and more successful versions of the film. But you see, this is a classic rock rock band trope, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? Yes. You, know, you, you, you get the classic lineup back, and, they, and, and are they playing the original material? <laughs> well, partially they probably are. So we've got first of all James Cameron, who directed the first two. Right. Yeah. Is back as a producer this time. Yeah. I think the director is uh, Miller. Is it Todd Miller from the Deadpool movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, and. Linda Hamilton, mm-hmm. the, the first Sarah O'Connor, mm-hmm. and Mr. Schwarzenegger. Mm. I'm not quite sure what role he's... I mean, because Terminators, you presume, can't age, can they? No. So I don't know what, how they're going to quite figure out his role. But anyway... Well, um, maybe he's overdue for his 70,000 kill service. Yeah. Oh, that's a nice line. Um, Proud of that one. And the interesting thing about what's being done here, Steve, is that I remember you talking about that not that long ago, you'd been back to see a this re-release at the cinema yes. of the second Terminator film, Judgment Day. This was Terminator 2 that came yeah. out in the late 80s, early 90s, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. And, and at the time, it was groundbreaking. It was a fantastic film. And I remember thinking, okay, I'll go along. I, I remember it being really good. I'll go along. I'll see if it's held up. And I remember at the start of it going, is it, should I be here for this? <laughs> and at the end of it going, yeah, okay, fair enough. I, I, I re- now I remember what the fuss was about. Yes. Yeah, it held up well, and I think the reason was that in in a lot of the other fil- the later films, you know, the, okay, what's Terminator about? What's about robots that kill people, right? So they have lots of robots killing lots of people, mm. and that was it. And the thing that made Terminator Two Judgment Day good was it wasn't really just about robots killing people. Mm. I mean, robots did kill people. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> that that did happen, <laughs> yes. and they killed them in quite extravagant and fancy ways. But there was character. Do you remember mm. there was? Um, uh, like you say, there was... Well, th- 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 that's, yeah. that film was... Um, first of all, they flipped the Arnold Schwarzenegger character. He, he, was a, yeah. he was a bad robot in the first one. Yes. He was a good one in this. Yes, film. he was. And he has this relationship with the young John O'Connor. That's the name, yes. Famously played back then by... A, it was very young then, an actor called Edward Furlong. Yes. And so that, that relationship was a big part of the film. It was, well, it was, it, that, that was the, the, the centre of the film. That was the yeah. heart of the film. Yeah. It, it had an emotional heart. Yes. So you cared about the relationship between... Yeah. And he wasn't just a person-killing robot. Yes. He somehow... And I can't believe I'm saying this about Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> he, he, he somehow managed to play a robot with a heart. <laughs> and and that, that's how astonishing it was. Yes. In, and, and yet somehow they managed to do that alongside the robots killing people yes, stuff. Yes, and you still yes. have the great big smashy bangy helicopters flying into buildings yeah. and exploding yeah. ending. Yeah, I, 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 I can still remember the end of that film. Yeah, quite and, spectacular. And it was emotional. The, the very, very, very yeah, end, yes. it really was. You felt, you felt oh, there's something that's actually going on here. About a robot. About a robot. <laughs> Played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> we, so, so it's astonishing. And, and yes... <laughs> And, and so after that, like I say, they, they, they forgot... That, so I can't stop laughing. Yeah, but they, they forgot that the film had this emotional pivot to yeah, it. Yeah, no. And, and they let go of that, and it just became robots killing yeah. people. So what they have done in this film, yeah, apparently, is forget about the two or three ones that have more, been done more recently. Probably one. And they've gone back to pick up the story at the end of Terminator 2, Judgment Day. That's what I understand has been done here. So they yeah. disregarded the ones that didn't work. Take said, look, audience, forget about those. Yes. Let's go back and pick that story up. At the end of the film, you did like. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It, it, it's, it's almost like they sort of like, you know, beta tested the other storyline, decided yeah. it wasn't playing well, and went, no, we'll go back to the original one. And the funny thing is, if you look at like the, 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 the well-known universes, like whether it's Harry Potter or it's Star Wars or it's Star Trek, any of those, 
the real fans they get so fussed about is this canon Mm. Is, are we counting this as so 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 when when he had the thought of throng or whatever it might have been <laughs> did he really have that because it was in this particular book does it count because it was only in the radio series and they, they get so bent out of shape Cameron's just gone yeah screw that yeah it was on film I filmed it to celluloid but you know what nah none of that counts that's a bizarre thing to do it is in a way but yeah, you know you're right it's it's just like we, we just want to do this again and try and do it better that's almost what they're saying having said all that you, you were commenting yourself earlier that the trailer the trailer looks like there's an awful lot of robots killing people yeah and I hope there's more to it than that there better be um, otherwise it'll fall down the same trap that the previous ones have done well again yeah. if, if they've realised that that's why the original ones the, 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 the original sequels mm. stumbled and fell if mm. they realise it's because you need to have some kind of emotional heft as well yes if they remember that one of the good things but I saw the trailer for this yeah. uh, directly before I saw Joker oh okay and, and I, re I remember thinking to myself no. No, I, I think the trailer doesn't bode well, I have to say. No, and I hope it's one of those cases where the trailer isn't the film. Well, and that is often the case. It is. We've talked about this a lot, yeah, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. So I, I will see it because I'm curious to know with those the returning elements of yes. the earlier films, just how they try and um, take the story on. So I'll see it and we can maybe talk about it next time. Absolutely. Um, all right then. Well, that's, that's a good yarn. And so we'll I'll be interested so. to know what... Um, you might have to say about the Joker, about the goldfinch, whether you agree with Debbie or not. Yep. The critics didn't agree with Debbie, but that's good. But what would they know? What would they know? Um, yeah, so look, thank you very much for listening, for watching. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can drop us a line on podcast at cravepodcast.com. We're all over the social medias because that's what the cool kids do these days. <laughs> we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram at Crave Podcast. Fantastic. So I'm Simon Mercer. I'm Steve McCabe. You say it, go on. And that is what's been entertaining all of us this week. Lovely. <laughs>